This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, June 12th, 2023. On the show today, news, surveys, and listener questions. Then in our main segment, Jim finishes up the story of Disneyland hotel renovations, including how it relates to the enchanted tiki room. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says parenting really begins when you go from, I can do better, to, eh, no worse than usual. It's Mr. Jim Hill. And Jim, happy Father's Day. <laughs> Doing well, Len. And uh, by the way, this brings to mind uh, a story about my own upbringing. Uh, set the stage here. Nancy and I are taking part in a family cancer walk a few years back. And we used to do these for my cousin Janet, okay. who tragically died of lymphoma back in the 1990s. Road in New England, we're doing the five-mile route that my cousin used to do every day. So it's seven of us walking together. Myself, my yep. brother Pete, my brother Dan, my brother Bob, and my sister Andrea. And then behind us is Nancy and my mom. And Nancy can't help but notice that of the five Hill siblings, we all have at least one shoe untied. <laughs> um, she turns to my mother and says, you couldn't teach them to tie their shoes? And my mother was like... There were a lot of them. There were a lot. <laughs> yeah, just to kind of assume Besides, that they would. If one trips over an untied shoelace and then falls down in traffic, well, that, that thins to hurt. One less mouth to feed. <laughs> exactly. Very <laughs> pragmatic parenting, Len. If there's not enough time to teach all of them a lesson, there's enough time to teach one of them a lesson. <laughs> you could be a bad example to, to, your, to your siblings. <laughs> All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout-out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers Jack's Dad, Chris Pastone, Christopher Payne, and Dr. Carrie Lynn. And longtime subscribers The Zarelli Family, Lyndon Wilson, Dan Kaufman, and Agent F. Jim, these are the Disney cast members whose job is eating dinner at Gusto's and acting shocked when rats run through the dining room. They say the kitchen staff are currently working through the bread section of Julia Child's The Joy of French Cooking, though. So if you hang around the back alley of Remy's Ratatouille Adventure, you might find some free bread being handed out. True story. Mm. Also, Jim, I, uh, I noticed this. Are you familiar with the, uh, with the bread chain uh, La Pan Quotidien? That rings a bell, but please go on. So they're, they're common in big cities. It's, uh, you know, it's sort of like a place where you can bop in and get uh, you know, a quick bite to eat for breakfast or lunch or whatever. But if you only know a little bit of French, Le Pain Quotidien, because it's spelled L-E-P-A-I-N Quotidien, if you only knew a little French, you would interpret it as our daily suffering. <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> anyway. <laughs> A mime is, is the spokesperson yeah, for it, right? <laughs> but, sir, what so do you sell here? Lean we, into the cliche. Exactly. So. <laughs> sir, what do you sell here? <sighs> we sell the, the dread of existence. <laughs> anyway, all right. Let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, Jim, a couple of brief news items. The walkway between the Grand Floridian and the Magic Kingdom has reopened. That's good. Oh, cool. Uh, also, uh, Disney's announced a new limited-time lounge at Hollywood Studios to support the opening of the Indiana Jones movie. Have you seen this? No, I've not. This is over at the, uh, the Indiana Jones gift shop between 50's Primetime Cafe and mm -hmm. the Indiana Jones stunt show itself on, uh, around Echo Lake. So they'll have, uh, they'll have uh, drinks themed to the new movie, as well as a uh, little bit, little small bites. Wow. Okay. And, and still keeping the retail space open? or That's a good question. I'm not sure. I think they'd make more money with drinks, don't you? Okay. Also, uh, listener John Shannon was at Fort Wilderness recently and sent in a photo of the new cabins being trucked in. Jim, I'm, I'm moderately surprised they're doing it this fast. NPR was doing this amazing piece about prefab construction. And in fact, if we remember our Disney history, this was how the contemporary and the poly were initially done. Yeah. But it then fell out of fashion 
and to now watch these things being trucked in. Yeah, and these things are coming in. They're they're painted. They're primed. The uh, the drapes are up. Like mm-hmm. this, these things are ready to go. They are turnkey solutions. We were talking previously about Disney's reflections on a lakeside lodge with the notion of what they wanted to do was convince people who'd previously stayed at the campgrounds to to upgrade, to have a, a better experience. And that project fell by the wayside. We now have the Poly DVC being built, but in a weird sort of way, you know, they are still circling back on this. I mean, hmm. the, these cabins are, are an upgrade over certainly the cabins that, that are there that on property right now. And I've heard, if you and I have both heard, that Reflections isn't dead as an idea. So we'll see what happens there. All right, Jim, we have time for some surveys. Ed sent in a Disney dining survey that asked about dietary needs or preferences. And the list from Disney included halal meals. So I want to give a quick shout out to all of the people who write Disney surveys. Thanks for listening to the show. I really appreciate that. Also, uh, Andy sent in a survey he got after visiting the Animal Kingdom. And uh, Jim, here's a question that has me concerned. The question that Andy sent in is, what's your general attitude towards change at Disney's Animal Kingdom? Please select a response that best describes you. Change is good, with few exceptions. Depends on the change, but I'd like it as long as I still enjoy it. Change is okay, and it doesn't bother me. I generally don't like change. And so, Jim, here's my question. Who checks anything other than it depends? <laughs> like, are we, are we trading Expedition Everest for something? What am I getting? Like, For the longest time, you know, this theme park had a protector in Joe Rohde who's, uh, you know, it's been since left the company. And mm-hmm. SpaceX, is, is that where he's working now? Uh, Virgin Galactic. There we go. Okay. And the D23 Expo, Josh DeMarro stood on stage and shared that piece of concept art that showed... Dinoland USA basically yep. turned into a Moana land. And likewise, looking off over the horizon, uh, we saw the countdown to extinction, uh, a ride turned into a Zootopia uh, right. experience. I mean, this is, this is going to be controversial when this happens. But the weird thing is we're seeing at Universal, uh, for example, the Minion Land, that they're getting VillainCon ready to open. They've taken that piece of production central... Long story short, Universal is leaning into its IP as a, a yeah. way to get people to come to that resort. And we've got Tiana's Bayou Adventure rising up and that sort of thing. That Disney is looking to get its contemporary IPs into the park as quickly as possible. And Animal Kingdom, up until this point, has not been a park with a lot of IP. And this is why. Change is good, with, with few exceptions. Right, kids? Right? <laughs> right. <So. laughs> I, I don't know, any, like I said, I don't know anybody who's going to check uh, the either either of the two ends of that change is good with few exceptions, or I generally don't like change. It's going to come down to it depends. My question to you, Jim, is what does Disney do with this and with these answers to this question? In the history of the Disney theme parks, they never send out a survey that they're not looking for a specific answer for. Right. There's only one negative. You know, I generally don't I generally like don't change. like change. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. <laughs> of our respondents said that they they would accept change. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) All right. Also, uh, Jim, an anonymous listener applying for a job at Disney got Mm -hmm. this survey question in the application process, which is seen by both internal and external job applicants. The question is this. Which of these potential reasons were important in your decision to apply for a position or continue working with the Walt Disney Company? The company's social responsibility, the fact that the company invests in education, the company's reputation, how the company values its employees. I have friends and family that work at Disney. There's an opportunity for career advancement, park admissions and discounts, and other. Jim, the uh, interesting thing to me here is that reputation and social responsibility are two of the first three things in the, uh, in the list. The, uh, the listener who sent this in also said that uh, I assume Disney's conducting employee surveys, but they can't force participation or engagement. So asking an employee who wants to move within the company this required question during the job application process is sort of a hard line approach, uh, and they may be looking for more data. 
again, the whole notion of you're coming to Disney because it's a socially responsible company right. or the company's yeah. reputation. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know of many companies that asks this of the, of its internal employees while they're moving jobs. But that's uh, I'd yeah. love to see the answers to that. Yeah. All right. Mm. Last uh, last survey uh, question. Ashley mm-hmm. sent in a completely new Universal Studios Hollywood survey, and I want to go over it in detail, Jim, uh, on another show. But for now, I want to highlight a couple of specific questions. Uh, One is this. Uh, We'd like to learn more about how you spend your day at Universal Studios Hollywood as it relates to timing. How many hours do you typically expect to spend at the park? And so Ashley picked five hours. The next question, Jim, was how many rides and shows would you expect to experience during a day at Universal Studios Hollywood if you were spending five hours in the park? And they have it broken down by the total number of rides and the total number of show attractions. And so my first question here, Jim, is is why? Why ask this question? Okay, so five, if you spend five hours in the park, and they're saying here that at the ideal, the sweet spot is, you know, at five hours, I want to yeah, get this is what actually five says. I'd like to get on five rides and see one show. And so six things show. in five hours. Uh, how does that correlate with your touring plans data? Isn't the sweet spot when people go... To a Disney park today, they want to get on at least 10 attractions? Yeah, 10 is the average. Okay. Maybe 11 now, depending mm-hmm. on, um, you know, Genie okay. Plus and stuff like that. But the number's been, you know, between like 9 and 11 for the better mm-hmm. part of a decade. And if you think okay. about how much time people spend, it's basically one thing an hour. So mm-hmm. Ashley's number is right in the middle of that. I think, you know, for if you're following a touring plan, you get there early, you can do two an mm-hmm. hour. I mean, then yep. the difference is pretty stark. The next question, though, that Ashley got was, and during your five hours at Universal Studios Hollywood, how much time do you expect to spend on the following experiences? So how much time do you ex- expect to spend in hours mm-hmm. on character meet and greets, food and drink, immersive experiences, rides, resting or relaxing, walking around the parks, and shopping? Hmm. And so I've never seen this breakdown, but it's really interesting. There's also a, uh, a follow-up set of questions that's based around an ideal day of, of eight hours. So yeah, if anyone else gets this, let me uh, let me know. I what I'm trying to figure out is like, is Universal trying to figure out what the expectations are for guests around the number of rides, and then see how many they actually do. Like if the mm-hmm. expectation's eight, and they're doing eight or better, mm-hmm. you know, then then they're fine. But if it's like people expect to get in an attraction an hour and they're not, mm-hmm. then there, then there's some issues there. Yeah, I think you're you're onto something. But but again, the theme park experience, you know, the, yeah. the the breakdown here of character meet and greets and or the immersive experience, just walking around the park, that sort of thing. I mean, face it, there's there's a certain number of intangibles here for uh, you know an ideal day in the park. But but at the same time, you know, the the very fact that, that what you're talking about. The touring plans, getting there early, doing the full day versus yeah. what's being talked about here. Five, you know, just five hours in the park. It's sort of walking up to the buffet and only getting the broccoli. <laughs> yeah, my, I, I'm not sure that Universal has a specific thing in mind with this survey. And the reason is, is that if you, if you look at the previous question about the number of rides and the number of shows and attractions mm-hmm. or show attractions, um, that you're going to see, right? That doesn't really line up with the categories of experiences on the next line, right? How would you, what would you consider a character meet and greet? Is that a ride? Is it a show attraction from the previous question, right? Same thing with immersive experiences. Like where does that fit in the previous two categories? Mm-hmm. And I'm not, so I'm not sure here that, I think this is version one. This is the beta version of, uh, or the alpha version of, uh, of this survey. So we'll see how it changes over time particularly given what Universal is building up the street. And, and yeah. face it, at this point, steel's going up, concrete's going up. It's not a question oh, yeah. of, hang on, we got this results in the surveys. Hold on, guys, we're going to change the plan. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, it's, it's all happening. The, uh, I guess yeah, some of the stuff yeah. that they're, yeah, that they're, they're trying to figure out here is like the entertainment stuff that they can change at the last minute, maybe. Absolutely. We'll okay. see. All right, uh, Jim, we have time for a couple of listener questions. Listener mm-hmm. Tim sent in a post-trip email Remember, uh, Jim, Tim had asked early this year about the return of the Walt Disney World Railroad for his mm-hmm. daughter, who's a big fan of transportation. So Tim wrote in and said, uh, uh, so he went with his family. Tim said, at lunchtime, I was grabbing something for us to eat in Epcot. 
My wife and daughter walked over to Imagination. We are a figment-loving family, so even this horrific iteration of the ride is must-do. Uh, my wife was in a figment hoodie, and my daughter was in a figment t-shirt. After we parked the stroller, the two of them hung out in the shade waiting for me, and then we ate our lunch and headed into the attraction. When we got back to our stroller, we found a plush figment sitting there and a pre-printed note, a copy of which I attached to this email. This was truly the highlight of the trip and the thing we've talked about the most at our time at Walt Disney World. So it's a little certificate that says, from all of us at Journey into Imagination with Figment, we hope you have a day filled with imagination and magic. Oh, that's nice. That's definitely some old school Disney. Yeah, Casper, and that's, that's why Tim wrote in. He's like, this is old school stuff. How often do they do it? Yeah, I'm hoping this is the first of, of many stories we hear like this, but that's great. Holy cow. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, really happy with that. And then uh, Meredith wrote in with this question. I'm wondering if you can satisfy my curiosity. Historically, have more people stayed in the Cinderella Castle Suite or on the Halcyon? <laughs> Too soon, Meredith. Too soon. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. All right. Well, let's go through the math here real quick. So there's 100 rooms on the Halcyon. It's been open for about 450 days. So 225 voyages. That's 225 times 100 rooms is 22,500 room nights. So let's say there's 2.5 people per room and the hotel's occupancy is 50%. Uh, I'll, give you, I'll spare you all the math here, but this is 28,125 people that have been on the Star Cruiser as a rough guess. So the Cinderella Castle Suite opened in January of 2007. And it ran that way for guests for three years uh, until December of 2009. Jim, let's say a family of three for each of those nights. So mm-hmm. 365 times three years times three people is 3,285 people in the first three years. But Jim, it's been open for 13 years and five months, right? Mm-hmm. So roughly 4,900 days. And I don't think they use it every day, do they? No, no. If anything, these days, it's more a case of you're a Scarlett Johansson that that Disney's trying to convince to make a a Tower of Terror movie. And, oh, hey, Scarlett, would you and your family like to stay in the castle for a couple of days? I mean, it's just, it's more of a, let me lay down this marker. Here's a perk. Do you want to do business with that? Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. We know that Fox can't do this. All right. So uh, uh, if we're saying that 28,125 people have been mm-hmm. on the Star Cruiser, and we know about 3,285 in the castle, then we need around mm, 28,125 minus 3,285 divided by 4,900 people per night mm-hmm. to have stayed in the castle since 2009. Uh, that's a little over five people per night, Meredith. Since December 2009, I don't think, Jim, yeah. uh, five people per night have been in the castle. So more people have probably been on the Star Cruiser. I'm going with yeah. that. Yeah. I think Len's math here is solid, folks. So I'm going to bow down to his expertise. By the way, did you see that all of the voyages have sold out? Oh, okay. I was you wondering know what? It's going to go that, out. It's but... going to go out great. And, and that's, if it had to close, this is the best possible outcome. I agree. But at the same time, it's a heartbreaker no matter what, and how the Disney's accountants or thereabouts are, are going to depreciate this. So it's just oh, yeah. how long it stays out of the inventory and what they then do with this piece of property that's adjacent to the studio and whether we ever see it come back. Uh, you know, lots and lots of questions. And Jim, speaking of questions, we didn't talk about this last week because I was out, but what did you think of the, uh, the Disney uh, tease during the Apple uh, VR headset? with Bob Iger. It's always fascinating to watch Disney and Apple working together because there's a certain theme park that Apple would seem to be a wonderful partner for that we've never actually seen them turn the key on anything. I know. Every but, every product announcement, every partnership is like the meet cute in some Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan romance, but they never get they never end up together. Ugh, yeah. Drives me crazy. Yeah. So I was intrigued to see it, you know, that I particularly enjoyed the Marvel What If tease of the Apple Pro. Right. Did you see at one point an executive for the company actually got asked about acquiring Disney? And it's just like, yeah. no, go away. No. Stop asking. No. <laughs> I don't think she's cute. No. We don't Her? want to be no. in the theme park business. Like you know, sister to me. Comcast yeah. is barely making anything doing that. Exactly. <laughs> so the... Uh, I had a I had a heads up that Disney was going to be in the mm-hmm. announcement about uh, for a couple months, 
the interesting thing to me was what they didn't show. So they give you a, a very brief look at the Main Street electrical parade on mm-hmm. a tabletop. My understanding is there was more in-park stuff that didn't get announced because the lawyers got involved. Mm-hmm. And imagine it's things like this. So it's, so it's different outside of the United States. But inside the United States, imagine if you're wearing uh, VR or AR glasses, walking around and trip over something. Who's liable you know, mm-hmm. for that? If you're on a ride and you are wearing your goggles and you can't see the emergency exit because you forgot to take it off and there's smoke in the building. Who's liable for that, right? There are a lot of things that could be done in Mm -hmm. theme parks with this that were filmed that didn't make it in because Disney doesn't want people to start wearing, you know, strange glasses or headsets into the parks. There's a part of me that's respectful of that sort of litigation that we're trying to keep people safe, but at the same time, it's just the whole notion of... There's so many things we could be doing, but somebody will hold up. You know? <laughs> yeah. You want to see progress. You, you, you don't want the, uh, the most concerned person in the room yeah. to always, to always uh, make the decisions, right? Something, you have to take some risks. Yeah, I get it. But uh, I do expect to hear more about, uh, from Disney about in-park stuff for those headsets at a later date. So there's at least two companies that are working on very interesting things uh, mm-hmm. for that. Cannot wait. Cannot wait. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim tells us about how the changes to the pools at Disneyland's hotel reflect how Disney presents the parks to us as guests. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Better Sleep. We all want to start the day by hitting the ground running, right? Of course, that's really hard to do if you didn't get a decent night's sleep the night before. And we all know what happens if you've had trouble sleeping. The next day, you're dealing with stuff like brain fog, you're having trouble concentrating. It's just not fun. Well, if you'd like to better manage that situation, personalize a sleep experience that will then calm your racing thoughts and help boost concentration, why not try one of the most positively reviewed apps in the history of the Apple Store, or so says Business Insider, and that is Better Sleep. I've been doing a lot of traveling lately, which, as you might imagine, has really disrupted my sleep routine. And I have to say that the Better Sleep app has really helped me mitigate all that. I'll just throw in an audio track like Wind in Trees or Green Noise, or if I really can't turn off my brain for some reason, I'll then listen to Better Sleep's Binaural Beats. Uh, That really helps with racing thoughts for some reason. I mean, that's the beauty part. The Better Sleep app has over 200 soothing sounds to choose from. Not to mention a range of smart features that will then help you sleep faster, deeper, and for longer. You can use a pre-made soundscape mix or combine your own favorite sounds, color noises, and melodies from Better Sleep's expansive library to create the perfect personal mix. Look, we all know that high-quality rest is vital to mental well-being and physical health. And if you're struggling with that aspect of your life, well, why not try one of the most positively reviewed apps in the Apple App Store? 600,000 reviews. When you sleep better, you feel better. Improve your quality of life in as little as one week. Download Better Sleep from your App Store or Google Play. That's Better Sleep on the App Store or Google Play. We thank them for sponsoring today's show. We're just a few weeks out from the official start of summer now, but for some of us, it's still spring cleaning time. A time of year when, well, we're just trying to get our houses in order, so to speak. And mind you, I'm not just talking about our physical houses here, people, but also our fiscal houses. Like, for example, maybe we're finally getting ready to address some of those subscriptions we've been meaning to shut down. And if that's an issue you've been avoiding, because you just hate to deal with those folks in customer service, you know, the ones who make it so difficult and time-consuming to shut down a subscription, well, here are two words that are going to save you so much time and money. And those words are rocket money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and then cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. Rocket Money also helps you manage all your finances in one place and automatically categorizes your expenses so you can easily track your budget in real time and also get alerted if anything looks off. As I record this, Nancy and I are away from the house. I'm actually finishing up my annual appearance at Dayton, Disneyana, and Rocket Money has been an absolute lifesaver on this trip. 
It's allowed us to log our travel expenses in real time, which is hugely helpful on a business trip like this. Look, over 3 million people have used rocket money, saving the average person up to $720 a year. And since over 80% of people have subscriptions that they've forgotten about, chances are you're one of those people too. So stop throwing your money away. Cancel unwanted subscriptions and manage your expenses the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash Dish. That's rocketmoney.com slash Dish. One more time for the people who can't hear me over the roar of the air conditioner in my room. Did I mention I'm recording this ad in a hotel in Ohio? Rocketmoney.com slash Dish. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, Jim, we're back. And thank you, by the way, for doing part two of this while I was uh, traveling with Hannah last week in the lovely state of Maine. We clearly missed you. It was lobster everywhere, Jim. <laughs> yes. That and blueberries. Like a lot like the Maine I know. So. Yeah. All right. All right. Third and final installment here, folks. And I talked about how back on June 6, 1984... Disney's then-chairman Ray Watson reached out to Jack Rather, and at that time, Jack agreed, in principle, to sell the Disneyland Hotel to Walt Disney Productions. And during the period that they they were trying to get it locked down, uh, Michael Eisner actually became the new CEO of the company. That was September 3rd of 84. But then on November 12th, Jack Rather died. Oh, no! Was he ill? It was, it was a- he, had, he had had cancer close to two and a half years at that point. And Oof, okay. It wasn't for lack of trying, but they just didn't get the deal over the finish line. And then the new management team was initially hesitant to sell to Disney. But right. what's worth noting here, though, Len, is a longtime attorney at Disney reached out and pointed out that when this deal fell through in fall of 1984, it was actually the second time that Disney and Rather had failed to complete an acquisition deal. And that first attempt was 11 years previous. The New York Times wrote a piece about it uh, in January 1973. The story said that Walt Disney Productions, Inc. announced yesterday it it agreed in principle to acquire the Rather Corporation's Disneyland Hotel and related facilities. And here's where it gets interesting, Len. It was for uh, 187,000 shares of Disney stock. And... Just a hundred thousand dollars in cash. It was a, <laughs> basically a stock swap. It's like when the when the uh, the NFL trades players and and, and they get uh, you know five hundred dollars in cash and a player to be named later. Later. There we go. <laughs> uh, five hundred dollars in cash. Like, what are we doing with this? Okay. All right. On the day this deal was announced, Disney stock was selling for two hundred and twenty three dollars a share. So value of the deal would have been twenty one million. Uh, 41 million, actually. I did the math. 41. All right. My mistake. That Disney stock was trading at that price because Disney World had opened 15 months earlier, considered a huge success. But on the exact same day this deal is announced, again, January 12th, 1973, a bear market gets underway. And it lasts through December of 74. The S&P 500 loses 48% of its value during this time. That's a bear market. (laughs) <laughs> yep. And then Disney especially gets hammered during this period because the Arab oil embargo starts in October of 73 and, right. and lasts through March. And Disney, during this time, loses 54% of, of its evaluation. Wow. In this situation, a straight stock swap with very little cash involved makes no sense at all to the folks at Rather. By the way, they, they have their own issues during the same time they're being sued because they own Teleprompter. And there's this, this huge lawsuit that's going on involving that. So anyway, long story short. What, what do you sue Teleprompter? What do you sue Teleprompter for? Like, what, mm-hmm. <laughs> like the number of people that use Teleprompters is probably really, really small. And then the number of people who have 
issues so great that they need to be sued. <laughs> like, what? what's a teleprompter issue that you end up in court for? <laughs> think about the 70s and think about, you know, we're seeing this, the start of cable television. You're seeing a lot of television stations and local markets. Oh, okay, okay. Got it, got it, got it. Okay. And right. suddenly this was, the very thing you're talking about, yeah, it went yeah, yeah. from, we're making a little money to, holy cow, we're making a lot of money. Yeah, okay. All right. Fair, fair. I do know, Jim, that uh, $41 million in 1973 money is $286 million in today's money. So a decent chunk of change. Yeah. But back to Mr. Eisner, who still wants the Disneyland Hotel. Sure. Keeps bringing this matter up. But the new management at Rather that's still trying to sort things out after Jack's death is, is no. And remember, 1961, the monorail gets extended over to the Disneyland Hotel. And just as a formality, there's a deal signed at that point that you have a 25-year lease on the monorail system. But, you know, we love you, Jack. We'll circle back on this. This won't be a problem. June of 1986, again, you've got a Michael Eisner who wants to buy the Disneyland Hotel and the Rather Corporation that's being rather... Hang on, we're still sorting things out after Jack. So they begin talking about lease was up. Yeah, it's 25 years. Yeah. And we need to talk. And eventually, you know, it goes back and forth, back and forth. And finally, in March of 1987, the Disney company effectively turns to the Rather Corporation and says, all right, we want the Disneyland Hotel, but we're willing to buy the entire Rather Corporation to get the hotel. However, we don't want to pay full price. So, you know, we'll we'll offer you $6 less a share than the company is trading for right now. Rather turns around and goes, no, and pivots to the Industrial Equity Pacific Limited Company, a firm based out of New Zealand. They open an acquisition deal with them. And uh, at this point, they acquire 28% of the Rather Corporation and announce that they will eventually move their position to 50%. And this totally freaks out Michael Eisner because it's like not only is the, the Disneyland Hotel potentially slipping away, but it's going to a foreign corporation that would then have the rights in the state of California to build literally dozens of hotels that oh, they yeah. could slap the Disneyland Hotel or Disneyland Hotel name on. So Disney actually reaches around the Rather Corporation to, again, the Industrial Equity Pacific Company goes, oh, by the way, do you know about the, the monorail? So Disney's talking to Rather, who has not yet sold themselves no. to Industrial mm-hmm. Equity Pacific Limited. That's just a bunch of words thrown right. together. Mm-hmm. So there's, it's a three-way conversation at this point for the Disneyland Hotel. It is. It is. Ooh, interesting. Okay, okay. Disney is literally trying to complicate this negotiation as much as possible. This is when the conversations start to happen to the effect of, oh, you know, it's very expensive to operate the monorail. We're thinking of of starting to insist that the the Disneyland Hotel pay us $10,000 a day to to operate. You know, plus asbestos. I mean, the you know, they're just all operating costs everywhere. Oh. Yeah, kind of, this, we've been operating at a loss for years, and this, yeah. is, this is at the point where the... Yeah, have the, you seen the price ec- of ball bearings these days? Yeah, it's just all yeah. crazy. Yeah, yeah, okay. The Industrial Equity Pacific Company literally raises his like, look, we don't want the Disneyland Hotel. We're actually going after, rather, for its oil leases. Oh, you could have the hotel. Yeah, okay. Yeah, right. and, and so right, Disney's okay. are, oh, well, you want to go have these? That's just an incredible amount of luck that they're like, yeah, I don't, I don't, we don't really care about the hotel. Yeah, yeah well, but again, <laughs> they wanted the oil. So, all right. all right. Anyway, Disney Industrial Pacific partner up. They acquire the the Rather Corporation for seventy six million again. September of eighty seven takes till January of eighty eight for Rather's uh, board to to and the shareholders sign off on this. And then six months later, Disney purchases that New Zealand firm's fifty percent interest in uh, uh, Rather's recreational real estate for additional eighty five million. Okay, so they spent, what, $161 million in 1987 dollars, right? They do. But to, to, to tell you, th- these canny New Zealanders, they managed to also convince Disney in order, well, you want us to move quickly here, right? You you want that hotel. There's $89 million worth of debt, we assumed, when we, we bought, rather. We'd love you to take that. Oof. Yeah. Okay, so the so the, hundred, the $161 million in 1987 dollars mm-hmm. is already up to $432 million oh, in today yeah. dollars. 
So the price has already gone up by $100 million. And they have to take debt on? Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, think about what they could have gotten this for back in, in 73. Back, oh, it, was, it was 73. What about 59? I mean, they, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. All right. Wow. Anyway, talk about rent to own, Jim. Jeez. <laughs> now, Rather's recreational holdings included a good chunk of property along the edge of, of Long Beach Harbor. That was where the Queen Mary was docked. Okay, so they got they got some real estate in Long Beach. Okay, fair. All right. They they do they do. And and if you remember on the earlier installments of this theory, we did we talked about the World of Water thing. Yeah. That rather had built a Disneyland hotel, basically a showroom for boats from five feet to fifty feet long. And and if you were guest at the hotel, you could purchase them. Then we got the the seaports of the Pacific redo in, in nineteen eighty, and that had thirty seven little shops and things like koi ponds and all that. But in 81, Rather signs this 66-year-long lease with the city of Long Beach. There, they've been operating the Queen Mary as a dockside hotel since December of 67 and and losing money, and sometimes as much as $3 million a year. Hmm. And But Jack Rather, because he's, he's been doing the pretend seaside and the pretend marina at Disneyland, you know, clearly has some sort of naval preoccupation because he he wants this in fact for him the real prize wasn't the queen mary but it was the 236 acres of land around the queen mary on, on oh. the waterfront in long beach where it's like ooh, i could do something with that and does that does that land come with a lease yeah and and when disney finally got all of the stuff away from industrial equity They've not only got the 60 acres of land that the Disneyland Hotel was on, plus an additional 24 acres just to the north that Rather had gotten at one point. So there's 84 acres of property in Anaheim. Okay. But there's also this 236 acres of, of land down uh, along Long Beach Harbor, which Disney seriously looked at, Len. In fact, in the 1990s, I don't think we ever talked about Port Disney, the project there that would have been a theme park, three waterfront hotels, retail and dining, public parks, and a cruise ship terminal. Yeah, we may have referenced it, but I don't know that we've actually talked about it. I'll go back and look. Okay, okay. Back to the Disneyland Hotel now. So Eisner's now got 84 acres of property right across the street from Disneyland. Not enough. He then sets his sight on the Pan Pacific Hotel, which is right next door to the Disneyland Hotel, acquires that 500-room, 15-story-tall building in December of 95. That one he gets for you know just $36 million. And now between the Disneyland Hotel and the Pan Pacific, the Disney company has 1,600, 638 hotel rooms that it's operating in Anaheim. You mentioned... You know, how much money Disney has put into acquiring these hotels. And Disney's attitude at this point was, we spent a lot of money acquiring these lands, acquiring the, these hotels. And yes, we could do something like the Contemporary or the Poly or that here. But the more prudent thing was to keep the hotels as they are, just rebrand them, put up new names, and get our money back for a couple of years. And, and then, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong, Len. They did use chunks of this land. I mean, for example, in 99, they pulled down the entire retail area at the Disneyland Hotel. That, in turn, became a part of downtown Disney, uh, the West Coast version. Though it's worth noting that a lot of the stuff that got built there, uh, the SBZN Zone, the Rainforest Cafe, the AMC Theaters, <laughs> now closed. Is that where they're gonna, they were looking to put that uh, luxury hotel? Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. Right. And what's been interesting about a lot of the Disney Forward conversations mm -hmm. is there are other hotels being considered. Uh, but what's interesting is what's supposedly being discussed for Anaheim is kind of a page out of the Tokyo Disneyland playbook in that, for example, the new Fantasy Springs area that's being built at Tokyo Disneyland, the one that right. features the uh, Frozen Land and Ride, the, the Tangled Ride, and, and the Peter Pan area, that has an in-park hotel, Len. And 
that is supposedly what's on the table for Disney Ford. The notion of the very <sighs> next hotel that is going to be built in Anaheim will be inside the park. You, know, you can look out your window at 3 o'clock in the morning and watch them steaming the gum off the ground. Jim, I think every single person that listens to this show would be would be really excited about that. <laughs> like that, that would be a selling point. Well, there we go. And for me okay. too, right? I mean, I've talked about uh, my desire yeah, 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 to, to, yeah. to spend the night in the Magic Kingdom, you know, legally. So again, they get the hotel finally in 88. They own it outright. It isn't till 2007 that the Marina Sierra and Bonita Towers now get Disney-esque names. They become the Magic, the Dream, and the Wonder. But that doesn't move the needle. I mean, for a lot of people still come to the Disneyland Hotel and say, it's a lovely hotel from the yeah. 1970s. Oh, oh, speaking of which, Len, you've talked on the show about your love of, of Love Boat and, and that sort of thing. I have to share a story. Oh, Just ahead. before the, this big redo we're going to start talking about here, I got up into, I guess this is the Marina Tower, the one that's, that's over the lobby. And on the topmost floor of this hotel was Jack and Bonita Rather's personal penthouse, the place that they'd stay when they'd come to the Disneyland Hotel. Oh, God. Okay. Seriously, Len, with your love of Love Boat and 70s television, you open the door to this, and it was like stepping onto the set of Dynasty. Marble <laughs> floors that then led to two-inch thick beige shag, shag carpeting everywhere. You know, If you went into Benita and, and Jack's personal bedroom, the giant walk-in closet with the rotating shoe, you know, uh, you know, here you, you you hit the giant knob on the wall, and you, let me. I have to find my penny loafers. They're in here somewhere. It was amazing. You would have been happy just to sit at the bar that overlooked, well, the the sunken living room, and of course the hot tub out in the balcony that overlooked the you know, the hotel. But anyway, back to again, two thousand seven. We renamed things. It's not enough to move a needle. Two thousand nine. It's time to really invest in the Disneyland Hotel. So this is one, for example. The Dreams Tower, which remember previously was the Sierra Tower, that gets renovated, new windows, new wallpaper, carpeting, soft goods are all changed out. The Dream Tower is opened in 2010. To further confuse the issue, that becomes the Adventure Tower as an adventure land. The Wonder Tower, which had previously been known as the Benita Tower, that gets redone in 2011, becomes the Frontier Tower, and then find the final piece of the puzzle, the Magic Tower, which had previously been the Marina Tower, where Jack and, and Benita's penthouse was located. That becomes the Fantasy Tower, a.k.a. Uh, Fantasyland 2012. And wow. back to talking about the pool, again, trying to make this the Disneyland Hotel as much like Disneyland as they could. This then gets redubbed the Neverland Pool Area. They recreated the original Disneyland Park sign, the one you saw as you drove yeah. up to the theme park. yeah. But this was all, which used as a support for two water slides, which were then deliberately shaped to look like the original monorails. Yeah, that was that was good design. I like that a lot. Yeah. If you're gonna lean into a, it's a it's a Disneyland hotel. Let's get some Disneyland in there. And speaking of getting some Disneyland in there, May of 2011, we saw Trader Sam's Enchanted Tiki Bar open. Ah, uh, yeah. What I loved about that is that kind of hit the sweet spot between. It paid tribute to the seaports of the Pacific. Easy for you to say, Jim. Pacific Seaports of the Pacific, yeah. There we go. And, and, but again, all about bringing more Disney into the Disneyland Hotel. If we're going to talk about the changes that are going on now, uh, yeah. you know, for example, the fourth tower that is just completing construction there, this is so representative of, of the modern Walt Disney Company because that's not fantasy, that's not adventure. That's the DVCs at the Disneyland Hotel. Yeah, you know, I've been talking to people about this. Is, mm. there a, is there a single theme that encapsulates all the rooms in the DVC tower? I don't, I don't think there is. No, no. But again, it's very representative. I mean, think about the changes we've seen on Walt Disney World property. Mm -hmm. It's so strange to be at this time we were just talking about Universal leaning heavily into its IPs, the Minions, or for that matter, the new DreamWorks-themed land that's being built over by where the old Woody Woodpecker coaster and all that's being built. They're like, you want to come here and see our characters, where the thinking is, if you're a DVC member, 
you want a nice looking clean room that you don't necessarily want characters in your face 24 7. That's the part that I think is going to be interesting from a public reception perspective at the new Disneyland DVC because they could have gone like the Incredibles themed rooms at the Contemporary. They could have, but they, they didn't. Could've. Yeah. So is it is it a question of like this is a locals market? They don't necessarily want to be immersed in characters twenty four seven. They get enough of it mm-hmm. in the parks. Like, is that it? Versus Florida, where it's like you're making a special trip to come to Walt Disney World. You want to be in the bubble the entire time. DVC members, in theory, would be among Disney's loyalist customers and along that line of thinking wouldn't they be the ones who'd love to be in a room that had as much disney as possible yeah i don't know uh, that this is a this is a great question i'm sure disney has surveys on it mm-hmm. do they're doing the dvc but also isn't a paradise pier closed right now for like extensive reno actually it's begun reopening and, and again interesting that you bring up the, the paradise pier name because this hotel has had a number of names on if we go back to when it first opened in 84, it was known as the Emerald Hotel of Anaheim. Then in okay. 89, the Japanese owners decided to change the name to the Pan Pacific Hotel. In 1995, Disney buys the Pan Pacific, changes the name to the Disneyland Pacific Hotel. Then in 2000, just ahead of the opening of DCA, the name of this hotel gets changed yet again to Paradise, the Disneyland's Paradise Pier Hotel with the idea that it would then connect this resort with the theme park that was about to open and to be specific, the land that was just across the street. And there's a couple of pieces of art that at one point suggested that there was going to be a bridge built from the Disneyland Paradise Pier Hotel that would have allowed guests to just walk over Disneyland Drive and come right down inside of that theme park. Oh, and see, that would, have made, that would have made the hotel better for me. I agree. I agree. This is the first Disneyland hotel I stayed at, and it was not great. I mean, the, the worst hotel, the worst Disney hotel room I've ever stayed in was mm-hmm. at the, uh, the Hotel Santa Fe in mm-hmm. Disneyland Paris, where the room actively tried to kill me, which is a <laughs> whole other story. But this is, this is number two in terms of bad. Like, there was, it was dimly lit... The bathrooms were from a a different era. It was just not a great Disney hotel. When the Emerald Hotel opened in 1984, Mm -hmm. again, this was built by a Japanese company with the notion that at that point they had research that showed that so many people were traveling to the United States from Japan to do the Southern California thing. So the thinking was, we want to build a hotel in Anaheim that will be comfortable for visitors from Japan. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Having stayed there, and again, obviously, your several ownership changes after the fact there, but was there anything there that you saw that gave a hint of this was a hotel designed for Japanese tourists? I didn't necessarily put the Japanese tourist uh, thing together with the bathroom complaints mm-hmm. that I had, but like, I'm not tall. I'm like 5'9 on a good day. Mm-hmm. And I was eye level with the shower head wow. in the bathroom. And I don't know if that's just because that's the way hotel rooms okay. were in okay. the 1980s that's or if it was right. specifically that, that, designed. That, it's yeah. anecdotal, but, but plugs yeah. in. Um, yeah. Anyway, back to the Paradise Pier Hotel. In 2018, the managers announced that they are changing Paradise Pier over at California Adventure to Pixar Pier. Okay. And it takes the company four years, but eventually they announced that to reflect the change of what's been made across the street, with Pixar Pier opening in 2019, a Disney's Paradise Pier Hotel now becomes the Pixar Place Hotel. They opened while they were still finishing up the changes. And I'm sure you've seen the photos over the last two and three weeks. And people yeah. have really been hammering on this hotel. It's uh, it's very uh, kindergarten, play school color scheme. Yeah. They opened it. They weren't ready. They're continuing to work on it, which if you remember how this story started out in October of 1955, where the the Disneyland Hotel opened (laughs) up. It's tradition. There we go. They had seven rooms. Well, you know, exactly. When the Rother Corporation, exactly. Yeah, an eight-room block with the eighth room being used for the lobby and, and, you know, and luggage storage. And I have to tell you, the photos that were coming out of the Pixar Place Hotel out of that first weekend, it's like, wow, which room are you using for the luggage storage? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) 
going back to that. So, but but wow. I guess the, again the tradition continues, and so. But anyway, that that's a look back at the the Disneyland Hotel and, and the, the very many weird things that got done around the pool there. And and again, just in hindsight, Lynn, I would have loved to have gotten you up to to Jack and Bonita's penthouse. It was just flat out amazing and i but i i I got in there like a week to 10 days before they gutted it you know as part of the redo so ah it sounded it sounded amazing i was in vegas when was it binions that sold and it had a um it had the john wayne suite Mm -hmm. was it binions and he walked in and i got to see it before they renovated the room and it was it was just amazing so I, yeah, to see stuff that's you know a, a hotel room that's been unchanged for you know 20, 30, 40 years, oh, it's just kind of great. Good. Jim, by the way, we're speaking about hotels and renovation. Have you heard anything about the Caribbean Beach refurbishment? Is it progressing as fast as it should? I've been trying to get some information about what's going on there. Face it, we are still in post-pandemic, and it's like. Do you not have the bodies, or is this budgetary, or is this supply chain? I mean, what's going on? You know, you and I have talked about this offline, but the contemporary room renovation schedule mm-hmm. is where project managers go to die, because <laughs> there are, and I'm not exaggerating, either three or four current flooring options in the various Caribbean beach hotel rooms, because. Mm-hmm. Disney never seems to fully complete a renovation at the Caribbean beach before, uh, you know, recessions happen or budgets get cut or whatever. And I think with this one, something has happened after they started Trinidad where it's not going as fast as it should be. And I don't know. We'll talk about this off offline. We'll see if we can find out more. Yeah. I mean, it, the other thing, frankly, is if you think about the number of times they have committed to this is the hot IP. You know, we're going to do Nemo rooms. We're going to do yeah. pirate rooms. And I have to tell you, as recently as six to eight months ago, I was hearing live action Little Mermaid rooms. It was actually it's 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 debuted well. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Yeah. So that's Jim. That's uh, that's something to uh, to look out for. We'll keep an eye on it. There we go. All right, folks. That's going to do it for the show today. You can help support our show and Jim Hill Media by subscribing over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows. Never before heard on iTunes. Also, we have an email now for tech support at Bandcamp, and that is support at bandcamp.com. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who'll be driving Birdie, his restored 1969 Dodge Charger Daytona, at the 2023 Travis 4th of July Parade, their 113th year for the nation's longest running July 4th parade. Starting at noon at Independence Park in beautiful downtown Travis, that's on Staten Island, in New York. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.